The following audio session was recorded live at the 2017 Region 2 Convention in Costa Mesa, California. Please visit oar2.org for information about the 2018 convention in Sacramento and to get links for more convention recordings. Thank you for listening. Ebby is a drinking buddy of Bill's from way back. They got drunk together lots of times. And we talked about, in the doctor's opinion, that in order for the message to be carried, it must have depth and weight. What does that mean? What, what did Bill Wilson bring Dr. Bob? What did Ebby bring Bill? Did, did, did they bring him some information that was new? Not necessarily. But what he brought him was identification of one to the other. Every one of us has been lectured, yelled at, screamed at by doctors, well-intentioned relatives or friends, well-intentioned colleagues, bosses, what have you, I don't know. But you knew something that they didn't get it. You knew that they just didn't understand. When we speak to each other, even though you may not look like me, I see some of the people in this room, and I don't think you've ever weighed more than 300 pounds or 200 pounds in your life. And some of you I look at in this room, and I know for sure you did, because I know your stories. Some of you I know better than others. One of you in the room I know particularly well, and I know that he weighed over 400. But the bottom line is, is that in order for one person to carry the message to another person, they must be able to speak and understand the language of the heart. And the language of the heart is that language that only we speak and only we understand. And what is that language? It is the language of someone who has lived in the hell of the food. I am not speaking to you today from a moral hilltop. I am not speaking to you today from some place of, 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 of reading something in a book. I'm speaking to you today because I have lived this disease. I have lived this illness. Whether or not you understand what I'm saying or you relate to what I'm saying, that's between you and your higher power. But we speak and understand the language of the heart. And that's why Ebby was so integral in this equation. Now, Ebby Thatcher has been going to Oxford group meetings, if you remember, before lunch. He's been going to the Oxford group for two months, and he has two months of sobriety. A little later on this afternoon, we're going to talk about the six-step program that the Oxford groupers worked. And we'll, sh we'll tell you what, what those six steps were before we, you know, before we go on. And uh, that'll be in Chapter 5, not now. So let's go to the bottom of 8. And Ebby is about to pay a visit to his friend Bill Wilson. It says here on the bottom of 8, My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober and that's in squiggly writing which is italics but that he was sober now 
if it was just an average person and the guy was sober, Bill wouldn't have been taken with that. But when he saw that Ebby was sober, he knew Ebby to be a drunk. So right away, this is getting Bill's attention. Not so much positively at first, but it's going to get his attention. Top of nine. It was years since I can remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wonder how he had escaped. See, Bill heard about what was going on with Ebby up in, uh, in Vermont because Bill knew people that lived in Vermont. His grandma and grandpa lived in Vermont, and they were writing him and apprising him of the situation. You know, when you're in that small of a town... Uh, everybody knows everything. <laughs> so as, a, as it happens, Bill was aware of what was going on with Ebby because he corresponded regularly, not on a cell phone like we would today, but through letters, he corresponded regularly with Grandma and Grandpa Griffith. <clears throat> Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. Uh, I wonder how he had escaped of course he would have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him. In other words, they were binge buddies. He knew, they knew that they could drink openly with one another. Unmindful of his welfare, <clears throat> excuse me, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time he, we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility, the very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. Eaters are too. There are marriages that were founded on binge buddyism. They weren't really so much in love with one another, but they married one another because they could eat openly with one another, and that drew them together. It wasn't the comfort of the other person's company. It was the comfort that I could wantonly eat in front of this person, and they won't comment on it. They won't do anything in terms of trying to curb my food. So eaters are like that too. The door opened, middle of nine, and he stood there fresh-skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what had gotten into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Come, what's all this about, I queried. He looked straight at me simply, but smilingly, he said, I've got religion. Well, I'm glad that that didn't happen in my kitchen, that you got all of a sudden struck with religion. I was aghast, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yeah, the old boy was on fire all right, but bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. And that's exactly what I did when people would get on me. When we get to step nine, I'm going to tell you a very uh, pivotal story in my life that concerns this. But people would scream at me. People would yell at me. People would think they were doing me a favor by embarrassing me about my weight. And I just learned to shut down emotionally. I just learned to weather the storm. And as soon as they were out of my face, I would go get Oreo cookies or I would go get, you know, whatever it was, because what they were doing was they were embarrassing the crap out of me and embarrassment and shame and remorse and guilt and fear and anger. Those are all what? Those are all emotions, which are going to provide my brain with what it needs to onto the mental twist, and the mental twist would say, eat the food. 
And my intelligence side of my brain would say, don't you dare eat the food. You want to look good. You want to feel good. You want to be healthy. And then the mental twist and the mental blank spot would conspire, giving me all I needed so that I could eat the food. And I would eat the food and I would trigger the physical allergy. Once the physical allergy was was triggered, there was no stopping me. It was that biological mandate, that biological subpoena for me to keep eating. And the more I ate, the more I wanted, the more I wanted, the more I ate, the more I ate, the more I wanted. And it was just endless. There was no end to it. But he did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men, Zebra Graves Jr. And, and Roland Hazard, had appeared in court persuading the judge, Zebra Graves Sr., to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. He had come to pass his experience along to me, dash, separate thought, new thought, if I care to have it. Now, when we do questions and answers, what's one of the questions I never take? I don't take any math questions, that's for sure. But I also don't take any questions about how am I going to sober up Fred or Mary or Mo or Larry or Curly. I don't take those kind of questions because it's a senseless waste of time. If Mo or Larry or Curly wants to get sober, they will. And if they don't, they won't. This is not the last time you're going to hear me say this, but I'm going to say it now because it's appropriate. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. This is an action program. There is no chapter in this book called Into Thinking, Into Needing, or Into Wanting. There is a chapter in this book called Into Action. And this is an action-based program. Action-based program. Okay. To Christ, I'm at the top of 11. To Christ, I conceded the certainty of a great man, not too closely followed by those who claim him. Notice him is capitalized. When he writes with capitals, he's talking about God. His moral teaching, most excellent. For myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient, but not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. And that's what I did with my Judaism. When it came to eat humantashin on Purim, I was right there, first guy in line. When it came to eat fried matzah on Sunday morning, I was right there. Lox and bagels, I was right there. But when it actually came time to practice discipline or practice the obediences that are a part of Judaism, I was gone. I wasn't there anymore. If you want to give me food or you want to give me presents or money or whatever the hell you want to give me, I'm there. I'm right there. So I was taking my religion cafeteria style. I wasn't really taking it in its totality. And so what we're going to learn here is that God is everything or God is nothing. What is my choice to be? Certainly I was interested. I had to be for I was hopeless. Top of ten. He talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice. As I sat on still Sundays, way over there on the hillside, thank you, way over there on the hillside, there was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
I, ne- I never signed. My grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folks and their doings, his insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen, his fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died, made, these, made, huh, these recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. Now, Grandpa Griffith, Grandpa Wilson was a drunk, and Grandpa Wilson went up to Mount Elias in East Dorset, and he had a spiritual experience up there and never drank again. But Grandpa Griffith was the one who raised Bill and raised Dorothy, and he was a real Vermonter. He understood that he's going to have to worship God and he's going to have to worship in his Christian church, but he was not going to let the preacher tell him how he must do so. And this influenced Bill. This influenced Bill tremendously. And he says in one of his biographies, Grandpa was a real Democrat. Now, I'm not endorsing Democrats or Republicans or Whigs or National Party or anything. He says, Grandpa knew he'd have to worship but refused to let anyone tell him how he must worship. And this had a great deal of impact on Bill. So we see some of the germinating ideals that are going to formulate our program today, and thank God that we can see it. Um, never sign. Oh, okay, this the war, uh, that wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. And what did he see in Winchester Cathedral that came back again? He saw the tombstone of a man who did not die in battle, who did not die of illness. He died from his alcoholism. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold, small beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgot whether he dieth by musket, musket is a gun, or by pot. Pot is the way they drank beer in those days in England. And they had quart pots and they had pint pots. And he's looking at the tombstone of a man who died from drinking too much beer. And he knows why his mother divorced his father. He knows why Grandpa Wilson was so reviled at times because of his drunkenness. And he's looking at this tombstone, and now he's remembering it all these years later. He sees the tombstone in, what, 17, 16, 1916, 1917? And he's recalling the tombstone in 1934. So it was 17 years or so previous. And he's looking at this thing and it's coming back. It says here in the middle of 10, I had always believed in a power, notice powers capitalized, greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are, for that means blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher. A cipher is a zero. A cipher is a nothing of no value whatsoever and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose under, and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much of precise and immutable law and no intelligence? I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I had gone. So he's, he's intellectualizing that there is a God. He sees some things that are stirring him up. 
but he's still fighting this idea. Can I relate to Bill Wilson now? You bet I can. I can absolutely relate to Bill Wilson. And the reason I can relate to Bill Wilson is because I went through exactly the same thing, bottom of 10. With ministers and the world's religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. To Christ, I conceded top of 11. To Christ, I conceded the certainty of a great man, not too closely followed by those who claimed him, his moral teaching most excellent. For myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. Again, he's taking religion cafeteria style. He's just taking what he wants, and that's it. Now, this next paragraph is timeless. See, I do not believe Bill Wilson wrote this book. I believe Bill Wilson scribed the book, but I believe he had a guy dictating the book that lives upstairs, and I believe God wrote the book. Why do I believe God wrote the book? Because of its timeless qualities and the fact that in the history of mankind, no instrument has brought more gamblers, alcoholics, food addicts, sex addicts, uh, drug, whatever, whatever you want to name, back to society, this pales all other methods combined. And this next paragraph is one of the major reasons why the wars which had been fought, the burnings and chicanery that religious dispute had facilitated made me sick. I honestly doubted whether on balance the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging from what I had seen in Europe and since the power of God in human affairs was negligible, the brotherhood of man a grim jest. If there was a devil, he certainly seemed the Bosch universal, and he certainly had me. But my friend sat before me, and he made the point-blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. So he's looking at Ebby, and Ebby is sitting in the kitchen at the Wilson home. And Ebby is sober. Ebby is not drinking. Ebby doesn't even want to drink. Ebby doesn't appear as if he is at any type of uneasiness surrounding the fact that he's not drinking. Bill is in awe of this. This is everything he's ever wanted. So he's starting to see that this force of of nature, this force of deity or whatever it is you want to call it, this higher power, is working through Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby is getting Bill's mind wandering. And where it's wandering to is, but this guy's sober and I'm drunk. I want to be sober just like him. I don't want to be drunk anymore. Page 11. He's going to stop looking for the burning bush. Had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute. And that, this was none at all. That floored me. 
It began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. So what is he seeing? He is seeing that he doesn't have to look for the splitting of the Red Sea. He doesn't have to look for the burning bush. He doesn't have to look for the oil in the, can- in, in the menorah that was supposed to last for one day and it lasted for eight days. He doesn't have to see the six-day war. He doesn't have to see that the Cubs won the World Series. He's looking right at a miracle and it is right there in front of his face. And he is looking at someone that he knows to be a drunk that he knows to be a serious alcoholic, and the man not only isn't drinking, but the man seemingly is happy in his release from alcohol. And this is having a great effect on Bill. Let's go to the very bottom of of 11. I saw that my friend was much more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasped a new soil. Despite the living example of my friend, there remained in me the vestiges of my old prejudice. See, he's not quite there yet. The word God still aroused a certain antipathy. Antipathy is a strong dislike, an aversion. Though uh, when the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. I could go for such conceptions as creative intelligence, universal mind, or spirit of nature. But I resisted the thought of a czar of the heavens, however loving his sway might be. I have since talked with scores of men who felt the same way. And now he's going to open the door to countless millions and millions of people, born and unborn, who can come into this program and be comfortable, whether you are whatever religion or no religion, whether you are an atheist or an agnostic, whether you are a believer, whether you are not, it doesn't matter. He's going to say here, my friend suggested what then seemed a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? Now come to think of it, my conception of anything, I am not going to dispute And there are people that are going to call me or they're going to question and they're going to say, well, if there's a God, how come there's a Holocaust? And how come there's cancer? And how come there's babies that are stillborn? And how come people molest their daughters? And how come people molest their sons? And how come there's people that get shot? And I'm going to answer you this way. I have no idea. But I do know that a lot of that is human will. We don't know what lies beyond our our understanding. I don't know what lies beyond our under, my understanding, but I do know that if God to me was small enough for me to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to solve my problem. And I don't know much about God. And today being Saturday, there are going to be countless theologians and poets, and there's going to be musicians and rabbis and priests and ministers. There's going to be authors, and there's going to be all manner of people that are going to spend their day today wondering about and philosophizing about what God is and what God is not. There are two things that I need to know about God, and only two. There is one, and it's not me. 
Those are the only two things I need to know about God. But here is what I will tell you based on my experience. I looked around in 1979 that there were people that had something that I wanted. Only I wasn't ready to do the work. And here is what I found out and this is what I learned. I learned that willingness in this program is highly overrated. I learned that willingness is an almost useless thing. What I had to do and what I did was I started taking action after action after action after action that seemed to be working in other people and hopefully it would work for me. I didn't believe in these actions when I first started taking them. What happened over time for me, I am not talking about you, I am talking about me. After a while, all these other questions about the Holocaust and about babies and all these other horrific diseases, this is what I came to understand. I will never be able to understand all these things. But I was taking action after action and the faith came. While I waited to be struck with faith before I took the action, didn't work. I had to start taking actions which I did not yet believe in and they produced in me the necessary spiritual awakening that I require today to stay out of the food. I do not have a mind nor body that can resist the temptation to eat or, you know, work around the physical allergy and the body part of it. I must have a power greater than myself if I am to remain out of the allergic producing foods. I must let go of this insanity that until the universe lines up my way, until the world explains to me why it's doing what it's doing, that is, I'm not going to recover that way. What I do know is, and this is what I do know, as long as I keep taking these actions, I will not compulsively overeat, and I will be able to do so happily. How do I know that? Because it has worked for the last 18 and a half years. So I can't wait to get struck with faith. I have to wait to get, or willingness. I have to be struck with the desire not to eat compulsively to a point where I'm willing to take action. Again, I can't say this enough. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. And when I say it, what I'm talking about are the steps, not the tools, not the principles. The principles are the steps, not any of that stuff. I am talking about the steps in the big book. That's what I'm talking about. And to do them, I don't need willingness. I don't need faith. All I need is to be at a bottom where the pain of eating outweighs the fear of letting the food go. Where the pain of eating outweighs the fear of letting the food go. That's your bottom. That's my bottom.
I have to know in my mind that if God was big enough for me to, or excuse me, small enough to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to solve my problems. So I don't understand all these other questions. And they're good questions for another day. For another day. This statement hit me hard. That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. And what is the beginning? We're going to learn that step three is a beginning and a decision. I saw that growth could start from that point. Upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. Of course I would. Thus was I convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. Again, him is capitalized. As long last I saw, I felt, I believed. Wow. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. A new world came into view. The real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me for a brief moment. I had needed and wanted God. There, was, there had been a humble willingness to have him with me. Dash, and he came. But soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors, mostly those within myself, and so I had, it had been ever since how blind I had been. No matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. And as a human being, I'm going to need God. And that's why I have to live in 10, 11, and 12 every day. Where you see people struggling, where you see people dying, where you see people gaining weight in OA. They're not doing 10, they're not doing 11, and they're sure as hell not doing 12. Because if you do those steps every day, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Top of 13. At the hospital, I was separated from alcohol for the last time. Treatment seemed wise, for I showed signs of delirium tremens. There I humbly offered myself to God, as I then understood him, to do with me as thou wilt, as he would, sorry. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to help my, to have my newfound friend take them away, root and branch. I've not had a drink since. Let's take a look back at this paragraph. There I humbly offered myself to God. What language does that suggest? The third step prayer. So we're talking about the first three steps of what we know today as Alcoholics Anonymous. And when we get into chapter five, we'll look at the uh, steps that they had in the Oxford group movement. It says here, I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced my sins, step four, and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch, step six and seven. I have not had a drink since. So he's working the steps. He's about to get a visit from Ebby, but he has worked one, two, three, four, six, and seven. So he's worked those steps in the town's hospital, and now Ebby's going to come. It says, my schoolmate visited me, and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies, step five. 
We made a list of people I had hurt or toward whom I felt resentment. Step six. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals admitting my wrong. Seven, eight, nine. I was to write all such matters to the best, utmost of my ability. Okay. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my... Oh, I forgot to say something here. That's very important. I blew past it. Okay. I express my entire willingness to approach these individuals admitting my wrong. Step 10, never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. So we see him working what we know today as the first 8, 9, 10, 10 steps of OA, or the AA steps as we know them today. He's done 1 through 10. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Step 11. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. So we have, he has worked now the first 11 steps of what we know today as the program with Ebby and God in the town's hospital, and he is... He is uh, still in the, in the hospital. Okay, my friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator. More promises. That I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. Belief in the power of God plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. Simple but not easy, a price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of Light who presides over us all. These were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. There was a sense of victory followed by such a peace and serenity as I had never known. There was utter confidence. Whoa. There was utter, I felt lifted up as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. Bill is in the town's hospital having a spiritual experience. An experience is sudden and profound, and the awakening that I've had is slow in developing over time. Much slower. God did not come to me bang, bang, bang. God came to me drip, 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 drip. That's how God came to me, that I recall. He did not come to me in one fell swoop like that. He came to me slowly. For a moment I was alarmed and called my friend the doctor, this would be Silkworth, to ask if I were still sane. He listened in wonder as I talked. Finally, he shook his head saying, something has happened to you I don't understand, but you had better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. The good doctor now sees many men who have had such experiences. He knows they are real. Silkworth could have told Bill, yeah, you're just crazy. You're just hallucinating, and we wouldn't be here today. But he was too good of a man for that. He told Bill Wilson, whatever it is, hang on to it because it's better than what you had. Now, Bill is a selfish alcoholic to the extreme. Never really gave much of a hoot about anybody but himself. Typical alcoholic. 
typical compulsive overeater. Can I relate to that? You bet I can relate to that. You bet I can. But let's just see where he goes from having that kind of mentality after the spiritual experience. It says here, while I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics, excuse me, who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. My, this is step 12. It is what we know as step 12. My friend emphasized, had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his uh, spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. What is that paragraph telling me? I must continue to work the steps every day of my life as if my hair is on fire. Invariably, there are going to be people that are going to relapse in this program, and I was one of them. What's the first thing to go? They stop doing 10, 11, and 12. They stop doing the steps. They just kind of diet with group support. The food going in the mouth for a compulsive overeater is not the beginning of the relapse. It is the final stage of the relapse. The relapse begins when I stop doing 10, stop doing 11, and stop doing 12. And before we go home or before we leave tomorrow, tomorrow morning, the very first step I'm going to talk about is step 10. And we're going to blow the doors off some of the old myths on step 10. And we're going to examine step 10 in a way that many of you have never examined before. And you're going to see that it's a lifelong process. There's no writing involved. It's not something that you do at night or in the morning. It's something that you do as needed. And um, it's a very simple thing. But without doing that, these emotions will continue to build, and I will eat again. It is a certainty. My wife and I, I'm on 15, abandon ourselves with enthusiasm to the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problems. It was fortunate for my old business associates remained skeptical for a year and a half, during which I found little work. I was not too well at the time and was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink. But I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. And this is something that if you call me up and you say I'm struggling, the first thing out of my mouth is going to be, what have you done today to help someone else? What service have you done to bring this message of recovery to the still-suffering compulsive overeater. In other words, have you gotten off your butt yet? Um, Sorry. Where am I? Oh, I'm on 15, right? Yeah. We commence to make many fast friends, and a fellowship has grown up among us, which it is a wonderful thing to feel apart. Remember when he had no friends? Now he's got tons of them. The joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. I have seen hundreds of families set their feet in the path that really goes somewhere. have seen the most impossible domestic situations righted, feuds and bitterness of all sorts wiped out. I have seen men come out of asylums. These are promises. This is just not... This is just not words. These are promises. These are the things that have happened as the result of this fellowship and this book. 
Bitterness of all sorts wipe out. I've seen men come out of asylums and resume a vital place in the lives of their families and communities. Business and professional men have regained their standing. There is scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. In one western city, Akron, Ohio, and its environs, there are 1,000 of us in our families. We meet frequently so that newcomers may find the fellowship they seek. Top of 16. At these informal gatherings, one may often see from 50 to 200 persons. We are growing in numbers and power. An alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature. Our struggles with them are variously strenuous, comic, and tragic. One poor chap committed suicide in my home. He could not or would not see our way of life. There is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. I suppose some would be shocked at our seemingly worldliness and levity, but just underneath there is deadly earnestness. Faith has to work 24 hours a day in and through us, or we perish. That's a warning. Most of us feel we need look no further for utopia. We have it with us right here and now. Each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Bill Wilson, co-founder of AA, died January 24, 1971. Okay. Can we relate to Bill's story now? I hope we can. I hope we can identify with the way he thinks and the way he drinks and that this is an identification process. We're going to take a five, seven-minute potty break, and then I'll come back. A couple of things before we start. There are flyers up here for the Vision for You World Convention in Newark, New Jersey. There's information on a vision for you. What is a vision for you? A vision for you is a part of OA that is a phone meeting. There are two, three of them a day, excuse me. There's one at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, one at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, covering the same paragraphs, and one from at 8 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time, and they are wonderful. And A Vision for You, which is a part of OA, is having their world convention September 15th, 16th, and 17th in Newark, New Jersey at the Marriott. And that is going to be a wonderful convention. There is also information up here on a retreat that I'm doing for the San Diego Intergroup at my favorite retreat center in the whole world, and that's located in Oceanside, California, and that will be coming up at the end of July, and there's information up here on that. And there's also information on the OA birthday coming up in January, so that's going to be a wonderful convention. The OA birthday is just an outrageously magnificent convention. These are all really, really good conventions. And the retreat, a retreat is a little different from a convention. The retreat is, is in Oceanside, and that's going to be in about a month and a half or a month and a week, something like that. So, San Diego, it's for the San Diego Intergroup, but it is lo the retreat center is in Oceanside, California. It's called St. Marie or St. Anne's or something, St. something. But it is, the, it is what it was, it was the first um, mission in what we now today call the United States. 
and it goes all the way back to the 1600s. St. Louis Ray. St. Louis Ray, thank you. And there's a tree on the property of this thing that's like 200 years old. It's amazing. It's Look at the one, the Yo, yes, but this is... But this is not a sequoia. This is amazing. This is like amazing. Or maybe it's more than that. I don't know. But it's pretty amazing. Is it really the 174th one? I mean, how many? I can't. I, I don't know. That, that looks weird to me. How could a, uh, how could, you know, OA has only been around since 1960, and this is their 170th <laughs> retreat. So there's something, something that's not kosher about that one. Maybe they did like four or five a year. That's a good point. I don't know. I don't know. Now, you're limited to three questions about Bill's story. Here are the questions I do not take. No questions about how to sober up somebody else. No food questions. And for God's sakes, no math questions. Yes. Page 58. They are from one end of the, to the other. Every word is, a, is, is a, on the steps. Every chapter we've done so far today is on the steps. Step one is the doctor's... I don't know what they are now, but okay. I If you read the book, it'll say you are now at step one on page 30. If you read the book, it'll tell you you're on step two. If, if you read the book, it'll say we are now at step three. Now we are at step four. Now we're at step five. If you actually read it, it will tell it to you. Yes. <coughs> one more. <coughs> No. We'll get to it this afternoon. Trust me, just follow with me and we'll get it. Okay. But step one is on page 30. It'll say you're now at step one. Step two is chapter... Oh, oh, that's on page 13. Yeah, you can just follow down there, yeah. Okay, now we're going to look at chapter five, how it works. We don't have the time... To necessarily, yeah, one more. One question. Only because you're cute. Only because I'm cute. Thank you. They talked about, he, it said he talked for hours talking about Ebby. But is there anything anywhere that talks about what Ebby actually said to him? I mean, it, he talked no. for hours, but what, what, no. what did he say? He told him about what happened to him. He told, talked to him about his drinking and some of his feelings. And he brought with him a book. And the book that he brought with him was tucked under his arm. And it was a book that was very popular with Oxford group people. And it was by William James called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And that's why you have the stories in the back of the big book. That's why you have the stories in the back of the big book. Okay. Um, we're going to go to chapter 5 now. And we're going to look. We've already looked at step 1. Step 2 very simply is are you... Do you now believe, or are you even willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? If you do believe that, then you're on your way. If you don't believe that, you're screwed. 
<laughs> You're screwed. If I believe that I am the be-all and the end-all of the universe, and I believe that there is no power greater than me, then I am absolutely screwed. Now let's take a look at what influenced greatly this chapter. The first thing we look at is that the first four chapters were written and they were done. And they had been looked at. Every chapter, every word had double space, triple space, and there were three copies made of each page. One page went to Akron, one page went to the New York groups, and one page stayed in Newark, New Jersey, where Bill and Hank Parkhurst had written the book with Ruth Hock typing it. And then the Akron people would make changes, and the New York people would make changes. The Akron people wanted more cowbell, I mean more God. The New York people wanted less cowbell, less God. And the fight was on. And Bill Wilson had become very nocturnal at this point in his life. And as a nocturnal person, he would stay up all night and be sleeping all day, obviously. And he had his legal pad and a pencil. And the legal pad and the pencil were on the desk, on the bed, and he said that he knew that he was going to have to codify the program of recovery. He's going to have to codify the program of recovery. And he said it was as if the pencil had a life of its own. And in less than 20 minutes, he wrote one of the greatest pieces of spiritual literature inside one of the greatest pieces of spiritual literature that the world was ever to see. There was an alcoholic. Now, Bill never set out to write 12 steps. He set out to close some of the loopholes that he saw the alcoholics jumping through from the six-step Oxford group program. He, he looked at it, and he realized that he had 12 steps. And that pleased him because 12 was a significant number in religion, it was a significant number in other things as well. Not the least of which is it's a dozen donuts that I could eat, no problem. Okay. Um, yeah, but the bottom line is, is that he, um, he looked at it and he liked what he saw. Now they forced some changes on him. An alcoholic came by that had six months of sobriety is that a chihuahua? No, he's a fox terrier. Oh, I like him. Very cute. Very cute. Very nice. Very cute. Okay, an alcoholic came by the house, and Bill was very, very proud of what he had done. And he shows it to this guy with six months of sobriety. And Bill says, look at what we have and the guy says, what in the hell is this? He says, six steps has always been fine up until now. Why do you need 12 steps? What do you need 12 steps for? It would be as if we in this room decided that now we're going to have 24 steps. And you take that back to your meetings. You take that back to your people. You can just imagine how the fight would be on. Now... <clears throat> They forced some changes on Bill. 
They forced quite a number of changes on him, and the fight was on. And at the end, Bill said, I'm not going to fight with you anymore. The Akron people wanted more God. The New York people wanted very little, if any, God. They wanted more of a psychological book, which we wouldn't know how that would end up. We'd be in, we'd be in big trouble then. And um, finally, he said, I'm going to let you guys finish the book. And they said, no, we want you to finish the book. And so they kind of gave him a little more free reign after that. But what we're going to talk about here for just a minute before we begin the chapter is where, does these, where do these ideals come from? Now, we've covered the fact that Bill goes into the Oxford Group Movement late November 34. He's been in the Oxford Group Movement November, December, all of 35, all of 36, and in 37, he begins the book. 38, he writes the book, and it was published in April of 39. Let's look at the influences in the steps. What are they? Sam Shoemaker was the rector at the, he was the minister at the Cavalry Mission. And Sam Shoemaker taught the boys that there were four impediments to God. What is an impediment? An impediment is something which slows or stops progress. <sighs> now, the first impediment is a resentment that you will not let go of. Step four. The second impediment is a secret that you will not tell. Step five. The third impediment is a vicarious thrill that you will not stop. And the vicarious thrill is not playing with your dog or playing with your children or your grandchildren. A vicarious thrill is gossiping, character assassination, stealing, manipulating. Those are vicarious thrills. And if we're not willing to stop that, that is an impediment to God. And the last of the impediments is a restitution that you will not make. Restitution is Oxford group language. We would say amends in the programs today. So we have a resentment that you will not let go of, step four. A secret that you will not tell, step five. A, a vicarious thrill that you will not stop, six and seven. And a, a restitution that you will not make, eight and nine. So you see where these steps come from. You can see the emanation point of what we have here. Now, let's take a look at page 58, chapter 5, how it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Now, the street myth is that if Bill could get back one word, he would say never instead of rarely. That is not true. If Bill wanted it to say never, it would say never. He knows that we are immature, sensitive rebels. And as immature, sensitive rebels, somebody with uh, oppositional defiance disorder, is, which some of us have, 
are going to go into that and say, never, huh? Well, I'll show you. I'll get drunk. And he didn't want you getting drunk just to show him that he was a putz because he wanted you to be sober. And uh, you getting drunk today or eating today isn't going to hurt him. He's dead. Rarely have we seen a person who has thoroughly followed fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And what is it that we need to be honest with ourselves about? Does it mean cash register honesty? Yes. Does it mean honest about certain things? Yes. Well, what is he really talking about here? He is talking about step one. Do you honestly admit to your innermost self that you are a compulsive overeater? Do you accept the fact that you have a mind and a body that are different from other people? Do you have the ability to see yourself for really who you are? And that is a person who cannot regulate the amount of M&Ms they eat once they've started and that cannot keep from eating M&Ms with peanuts now that I want to. And if I can't eat M&Ms because of the allergy, nor can I keep from eating them because of the twist of the mind, I am powerless over food, and my life is unmanageable. Can you see that in yourself? And you're going to see some of his exact language as we move through the chapter. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Is that really six ounces? Is that really four ounces? Is that really on your food plan? Yes, it is It is possible to think that chocolate is indeed a vegetable. I get that. But <clears throat> are you really being honest with yourself? And just because it's, it's only... Uh, 3-2 beer instead of full potency beer should you be drinking it if you're alcoholic. No, you should not. They are not. They are born that way. They are naturally incapable of developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Honest about what? Honest about the fact that you are a compulsive overeater, if you are one, with an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind that sets you apart from the normal temperate eater. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened and what we are like now. If you've decided you want what we have and you're willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. That's what I call step zero. That's your bottom line there. There's your step off point. If you've decided you want what we have, what is it that we have? We have people in OA that are not compulsively overeating. No, that's not the whole story. There's people at Dunkin' Donuts right now that are not compulsively overeating. But we have people that are not compulsively overeating that are compulsive overeaters and they are doing so happily. And if they weren't working the steps, they would not be doing so happily. They would be doing so with great difficulty. 
they would be dieting with group support, swinging from the chandeliers, stark raving abstinent. And you don't want to be stark raving abstinent. You'd rather be free. And in order for you to be free, you're going to have to work the steps. Because who could stay on that diet a long time? Not me, said the little red hen. Then if you want what we have and you're willing to go to any length to get it, what are you willing to do and what are you, when are you willing to do it? If I'm not willing to go to any lengths to do this, I am not going to do it. And what makes me ready to do this? What makes me ready is the admission to myself that I need to. And where does that come from? The admission to myself that I am indeed a compulsive overeater to the max and that there is nothing that I'm going to be able to do that is going to stem the tide of this illness. Only a spiritual awakening is going to help me. At some of these we balked. Balk means to hesitate. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go, absolutely. In other words, the language here is very absolute language. The result was nil, fearless and thorough from the very start. Hold on to our old ideas. The result was nil until we let go, absolutely. You're either in or you're out. This is, this is not a, there's no middle ground here. You're either doing this or you're not. It's like a vending machine. I, I hate to compare it to that, but it is. Recovery is a vending machine. If the product costs $2 and you put in $1.99, what are you going to get out of there? Nothing. You'd be lucky if you get your $1.99 back, right? You put in $1.99, you're going to get nothing. You're either in or you're out. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us what? Nothing. Thank you. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Again, you have absolute language with with no allowance for any ambiguity whatsoever. It is absolute language. Till we let go, absolutely. Complete abandon. Half measures availed us nothing. All these things are meant to drive home that we're in or we're out. Now, we're not going to read the steps. We're going to go to page 263, and we're going to see what they were doing in the Oxford Group Movement. Page 263 in the fourth edition. Now, the Oxford Group had their steps, six of them, and they had their absolutes. The absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, absolute love. Those were the four absolutes of the Oxford Group movement. These are the six steps. Complete deflation, dependence and guidance from a higher power, moral inventory, confession, restitution, continued work with other alcoholics. So we have this as history that this is where we come from, that this is where we come from. Okay, 
many of us exclaimed, I'm on page 60. I'm on page 60. Many of us exclaimed, what an order, I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. Okay? He just, Bill took writing classes in which they taught him, don't keep using the same word again and again, like, you know, you know, you know, you know. So he didn't use, so he uses the word principles. He uses the word steps. It's the same thing. We are not saints. The point is we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic, that's the doctor's opinion, chapter one, Bill's story, two, more about alcohol, or there is a solution, three, more about alcoholism. Um, The chapter to the agnostic, chapter four, we agnostics. And our personal adventures before and after made clear three pertinent ideas. Now, most of the time when we go through the ABCs, you're either playing with your phone, as some of you are now, or you're in the parking lot, or you're still on the highway, and you're doing whatever you're doing when the people at the meeting are going through these. But let's amplify these things just a little bit so that they can have more of a meaning for you. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. What does it mean to be an alcoholic? Again, it is a person that has the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind. If you do not have the twist of the mind and you do not or you don't have the allergy of the body, you are not an alcoholic. You are just not a compulsive overeater. It is the twist of the mind based on the buildup of emotions and the allergy of the body. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. Now I'm going to mention some names that are going to illustrate this point for me. If you do not know who they are because you're too young, you can Google them. Mama Cass Elliott, Jim Gandolfini, Karen Carpenter, Jackie Gleason, President William Howard Taft, Oliver Hardy, um, Jerry Garcia, um, and one more that I'll throw in that I know to be in that group is John Candy and Christopher Farley. I threw two more in. John Candy and Chris Farley. All these people had money and power and fame and they were at the top of their games and this illness cut them down. Now why am I mentioning their names? Mama Cass Elliot had the voice of an angel, but she was cut down at about 400 pounds. She was shoving a sandwich in her mouth at the London Palladium and that was the end of her. Was there anything she couldn't have afforded if she wanted it? Was there anything she couldn't have if she wanted it? If money could buy it, she could have it. Yet she died of this illness. That no human power could have relieved our alcoholism is very important for me to remember. Money won't do it. Sex won't do it. A woman won't do it. A man won't do it. Children won't do it. A horse won't do it. A dog won't do it. A cat won't do it. A bigger house won't do it. A new car won't do it. No matter what happens in this world, I will not recover while I hold on to the idea that a thing that is of this earth is going to fix me. 
And that's so tempting to do. If I had a girlfriend, if I had a wife, if I had a husband, if I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning, I'd hammer in the evening, whatever it is. We hang on to these insane, all the young people are looking around going, what the hell? Hammer, what? Where did he get that from? Again, Google it. Mary, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Google it. Okay, now, let's take a look at these fantasies as fantasies, and we can see how absolutely wrong that is. William Howard Taft was the president of the United States. He couldn't get elected dog catcher today. He was morbidly obese. He was so obese that the bathtub that is provided the president of the United States in Washington, D.C., in the White House, was not adequate enough to bathe his rather rotund derriere. So he had to have his bathtub brought out from Ohio so that he could soak his tush, he soak his little tuchus in the bathtub because he couldn't get his he couldn't get his derriere in the bathtub. Now he couldn't get elected dog catcher today. Was he a good president? Not the point of my discussion, but he was morbidly obese. See that God could and would if he were sought. So when we have a God in our life in step two, that we have to believe that he could and would if he were sought. If I have a God in my head that will not help me, even when I seek him, I need to fire that God and hire a new one. And that is, was so hard for me at first. My God is a God that will be there if I ask him to. My God is a God that will help me. My God is a God that demonstrates through his will, through his behaviors, that he loves me unconditionally and that at times when I need him most and expect him least, at times when I need him most and don't know how to even access him through prayer, he is there for me and he shows himself to me in ways that are just miraculous. He shows himself to me in ways that are wonderful, absolutely wonderful, that God could and would if he were sought. Now, who was it that asked me the question about the steps in the book? Being convinced, what does it say? We were at step three, right there. There you go. We were at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood him, just what do we mean by that and just what do we do? Before we go on, let's take a look at what does that mean and what is that? Well, the bottom line is this. Our life is our action and our will is our thinking. So when am I turning over to God? I'm turning over to God my life, which is my action, and my will, which is my thinking. I'm turning over my thinking and my action over to his care and direction. The first requirement, very important that we see that for the word requirement, is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show. 
is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, the rest of the players in his own way. What we're describing in this paragraph is the character defect of selfishness. Selfishness in 1935, 36, 37 did not mean the same thing it means today. Selfishness to me means if we land on a Caribbean island and there's only four boxes of food, I hog all four to myself and don't give you any. That's selfishness. In their lingo, selfishness means the script. Selfishness is is the script. In other words, you need to stick to the script of what I want you to do. Okay? If If only the arrangements would stay put, very top of 61. If only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful in trying to make these arrangements. Our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, there it is, and dishonest, but as with most humans, he is more likely to have varied traits. We all have a script in our head of not only how our life should go, but everybody else's life should go too. I have a 22-year-old. I'll give you her cell phone number if you'd like it. You can call her at any time and tell her what you think she ought to do with her life. You may hear, you may hear some words that you wouldn't think you'd hear, but I guarantee you will hear them. And she, she, she's not above telling you where to stick your ideas and, your, and, you know, to go do things that are anatomically impossible. She would not have any problem telling you that. And she has got her own script for her life, and she's got her own script for the life of everybody around her, as we do too. But if you'd like to tell her what you think she ought to do, I'll very, very happily put you in touch with her. But she's 22, so remember, she knows all the words and what they mean and how to spell them. So the bottom line is you can look around you, and the first thing that's going to get your attention, anger-wise or fear-wise, are going to be people who do not stick to your script. They're going against your grain. They're going against it. Now let's define the character defect of self-seeking. Self-seeking is the actions we take or omit to get our own way, okay? Self-seeking are the actions that we take or omit to help us get our own way. What usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. He begins to, to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. He becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. Still the play does not suit him. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, he is sure that other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker? Hi, Tom. He is, not, is he not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is he not a victim of the delusion? What's a delusion? A delusion is like an illusion or a mirage, something that appears real but is not real. It's a delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only he manages well. So in other words, if I manage well, 
and I tell you what to do and you seem to be doing it, I'm going to be very, very happy. But over there, there's a woman. She's not sticking to my script. And over there, there's a man, and he's not sticking to my script. And over here, there's another woman. She's not sticking to my script. And so where does it end? It ends with me face down at the International House of Pancakes in the, in the unlimited all-you-can-eat pancake deal. That's where that ends. They don't... Yeah, that's where that ends. That's where that ends. And what was the what was the trigger zone to that? What was the trigger to that? Somebody didn't stick to my script. And that's going to be the first thing we're going to look at when you do your step 10s is the person who is sitting here is coming back. The the person who's coming here uh who uh didn't stick to the script. Okay. Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants and do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not even in his best moments a producer of confusion rather than harmony? Our actor is self-centered, egocentric as people like to call it nowadays. He is like the retired businessman who lolls in the Florida sunshine in the winter, complaining of the sad state of the nation. The minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century. Politicians and reformers who are sure all would be utopia if the rest of the world would only behave. The outlaw safecracker who thinks society has wronged him and the alcoholic who has lost all and is locked up. Whatever our protestations are not most of us concerned with ourselves, our resentments, or our self-pity. So we are concerned with ourself. We are really looking to satisfy our instincts. And instincts gone crazy is the root of the entire issue. Instincts gone crazy. If everybody could have their basic instincts satisfied, there'd be no conflict left on earth. There'd just be no conflict at all. But we can't. I want this rubber band. And my friend Christian over here, he wants this rubber band too. The others won't do. Pretend they're not here. It has to be this one. But I grab the rubber band, or he grabs the rubber band. One of us isn't going to get this rubber band. And so we're in collusion. We're in collision, not collusion. We're in collision with one another. We're in collision with one another. His instinct is to keep the rubber band. My instinct is to fish away where I can fish it away from him. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trick him in some way. I'm going to kiss his butt. I'm going to kick his butt, but I'm going to get that rubber band away from him. And this is the root of the entire problem because what's that producing? It's producing the buildup of everyday normal human emotion. And as those emotions build, they will demand resolution. And the resolution that they will come to is they will come to you eating to kill the pain of not eating. You must kill the pain of not eating. Okay, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Why don't we think so? Because it all makes sense in our head. 
but we're going to find out that a solitary self-appraisal is insufficient. That's why I have a sponsor. That's why my sponsor has a sponsor. That's why my sponsor's sponsor has a sponsor. My sponsor's sponsor's sponsor has a sponsor. And on and up the line. Up the line, up the line, up the line. Because none of us can appraise the situation without the eyes and ears of another human being. I am not qualified to make such an appraisal. I'm just not qualified. And there often seems to be... Oh, sorry. And above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of selfishness, of this selfishness. We must or it kills us. That's a warning. God makes that possible. And there often seems to be no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own willpower. We had to have God's help. Can I will myself to be less scared, less uh, controlling? I cannot. I need God's help. I must have a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Now... Let's remember that all conflict, all anger, all fear comes from a place. And where does that place come from? It comes from an interruption or a perceived interruption in my acquisition of or my possession of something in my basic instincts. We are all born with basic instincts of life. Every one of us is imbued with instincts that are very, very important for the survival of the human race. So, it's not just what I currently hold in these areas, but they also would include my ambitions for the future. Let's take a look at the very first of the instincts that we're going to use in step four. Let's take a look at this. The first instinct is the social instinct. God imbues us with this need to be accepted by our peers around us. He imbues us with this desire to be accepted by other people. We want to be part of the in-crowd. We want to be part of the group. If you'd like a beautiful illustration of this, go to any middle school at lunch or go to a middle school or a high school after school. I used to pick up my daughter when she was in middle school, Cocopa Middle School in Scottsdale, Arizona. And she, she would go home and I would take her friend Brooke home too. Her and Brooke would be in the back seat of my car. Guess what they were not talking about? They were not talking about math or science or history or anything. They were talking about who like likes who and who likes who and who like like likes who and who's going to have a sleepover and who's invited and who's not coming and who is coming and whose whose clothes are you wearing and whose clothes do you want to be wearing. I used to spend all this money on clothes and see other girls wearing the damn clothes. But anyway, they would chitter-chatter in the back seat about who likes who, who's going to have the sleepover, who's going to do this, and who's going to do that. Not a word about science, math, history, nothing. They were chattering on and on about that stuff. 
And if somebody wasn't invited to something, it was a national catastrophe. <laughs> the only more impactful catastrophe was a zit. I almost had a, I, I, almost, I almost ran on Scottsdale Road, I almost ran into oncoming traffic because somebody discovered a zit. I never heard a scream like that in my life. It was like a, a blood-curdling scream that came from the bowels of somebody's heart because somebody had a zit. And I almost drove into the oncoming traffic. I was so scared. Thank God I didn't do it. And a zit or something, uh, what else? A zit, I guess a zit was about the, the be-all and the end-all of the emergencies in those days. A zit was pretty high. Or uh, something happened to a shoe or something happened to a necklace or a bracelet or something like that. That was not good. That was no, 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 no good. Not good. Not good. Okay, so we have the social instinct. And even cavemen, Heidelberg man, Peking man, Cro-Magnum man, if you look at fossils and you look at the evidence, they knew that they could divide labor more effectively than they could just do everything by themselves. They would say to Christian, you run that wildebeest through here, and me and Allie over here, we're going to get our clubs, and we're going to clonk that thing over the head when it runs through here, and we'll all have something to eat. Right? So we discovered as human beings that we could work more efficiently through working through groups than we could with, uh, you know, just individuals. So the bottom line is, is that we learn these things because these are instincts imbued into us by God. And any interruption either in what we have currently or our ambitions for the future. Maybe I'm sitting and eating lunch at Coco Pond Middle School with this group over here. My daughter's name is Hannah. So it would be Hannah and Brooke and Molly and what was the other one's name? Rebecca. And there was a couple more that would sit there and eat lunch. And they would scream in my ear on the way home. But um, anyway... Um, let's say that they want to go eat over there at that table. Well, if they don't get accepted by the new group, that's their ambition for the future, some heads are going to roll. I guarantee you, with those ladies, heads are going to roll. So they would, they would have their ambitions for the future, and if you're interrupting them, they're going to fear you, they're going to resent you, and you're going to incur their wrath. You will in turn create pain and suffering for them, and then the emotions will build up demanding resolution. Everybody clear on that? I hope you are. Okay, good. Because we don't really have time to go over a bunch of this because I've got a lot of ground to cover, and tomorrow's session is pretty abbreviated. Um, I blame Tom, but there are other people who, who are to blame. It's all I've learned. Just blame him. Just blame him. Anyway, okay. So, let's go to the social instinct, and there's a subheading in there, and it's called self-esteem. Now, if you interrupt the way I think of myself, I'm going to resent you, I'm going to fear you. Now, self-esteem, bear with me on this one, I can't, I don't know how to explain it any other way. Self-esteem is not just what I think of myself. It is what I think you think of me. Some of you have been very kind since I came here to um, Costa Mesa. And you've been very effusive in your loving me and hugging me in the hallway and telling me how much you've heard me speak here or you heard me speak there. 
and that makes me feel wonderful, not just for me, but for you as well. But if I think that you thought that I sucked, it would not only affect me in other ways, but it would affect my self-esteem because I am not what I think I am. I am what I think you think I am. I hope that explains it because I hate going over that part. Okay, now, the security instinct. We are imbued by God all the way back to Genesis of the Old Testament, or what we would call the Torah. <clears throat> Joseph's dream of seven years of prosperity and seven years of famine saved Egypt, right? Okay, I'm not getting biblical, but this is a good way to illustrate it. I'm not endorsing any religion or any Torah or any anything. I'm just telling you it's a commonly known story and it's something that many of us have been exposed to. If you haven't been exposed to it or you don't want to be exposed to it, that's perfectly okay. That's perfectly okay. Now, we all have an instinct in the security area to protect what we currently have. People lose their jobs. They hated their jobs, but they're crying. Why are they crying? They're crying because their income has now been cut and they're going to have to go get another job. Somebody took away what they already have in the area of security. Or they want a better job and they don't get hired, so they resent. Now, I am all for living one day at a time. I believe we should live one day at a time. But... We are imbued by our creator with the security instinct to provide for the future. I hope I'm not the only one in this room with a life insurance policy. I have a life insurance policy. If I die today, before my body hits the ground, my ex-wife and my daughter will be right at that State Farm agency in Scottsdale, and they'll be saying, Chubby croak, let's have a check. And that'll be it. They'll get their money. But that, that, um, that life insurance policy is paid for every month so that I can leave something for my child. And we have that. Now, I also hope I'm not the only one in the room that has a savings account. I put money aside... Did I hit on a punchline there by mistake? Okay, sorry about that. Okay. I hope I'm not the only one in the room with a savings account. Boom, boom. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. I hope I'm not. Okay. Because there's something about my instincts that say, you, Harlan, better save something for a rainy day. And since I live in the desert, there's not too many rainy days. But when it rains, Vegas Mir, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty intense. It's pretty in when it rains in Arizona, it usually pours in Arizona. And I lived in Eugene, Oregon for nine years. So I went from a place where it rains 275 days a year to a place where it might rain 15, 20 days a year. But in Eugene, Oregon, the rain is just ubiquitous. You don't even know it's raining. Um, and you just wear a raincoat as a matter of just, just course. You just wear your raincoat there. And in Arizona, when it rains, it really gets your attention. It really does get your attention. I remember a neighbor of mine, uh, it rained so hard that his skylight got punched out by the hail that was hitting this. It got a hole in it. Can you imagine how hard that thing must have hit there? Because those skylights are pretty 
pretty sturdy. Pretty, they're pretty well built. Those skylights, you know, the things I'm talking about in the in the roof that lets the light in. Okay, his skylight got punched out. Man, that was wild. I, when I was when I had my house when I was married. But anyway, um, I hope I'm not the only one with a savings account. I put a little money aside here. I put a little money aside there so that if I have some sort of a blip in the screen, some emergency, I can take care of you know situations that come up. Okay, now, the security instinct has a couple of subheadings, not just money, not just pocketbook, but what about emotional security? Emotional security is very important, too. And if you upset my emotional security, I'm going to be very upset and I'm going to be very scared. And I'm going to retaliate and we're going to have a problem and I'm going to end up eating it somewhere that I shouldn't be eating and eating food because of the buildup of human emotions. It's going to trigger the mental twist and then the allergy is going to set in. Now there's also another one called personal security. If there was a person, Tom, Tom is that person. Mm -hmm. If there was a person crazy enough to come in here with a weapon and wielded a knife or a gun and was a threat to you, you would instinctively either run away from him or tackle him and get the weapon away from him. That instinct of protecting your life comes from the security instinct, personal security, personal security. Now, the last of the instincts, the third instinct, is the sex instinct. Now, just to be very clear, I don't care whether your sex is man-man, woman-woman, or man-woman. I don't care. Do not care. That is not my business. It's not my issue. It's not my anything. I don't want to comment on that. I don't want to talk about that. When I say sex, it is like God. It is sex as you understand sex. It is sex as you understand sex, okay? So whether it's man-man, woman-woman, man-woman, I'm good. I'm totally good. When we get into the later part of the chapter, we're going to talk about sexual harms. But for this purpose, we're just talking about sex. Anything that upsets what I currently hold in that area or my ambitions for the future are going to upset me. I was married for 17 and a half years. And in May of 2010, my then wife came home and said, guess what? We need to talk. Anytime a woman says we need to talk, you do not need to hear what she has to say. Just, just pack your stuff and go. Pack your, pack your stuff and get the hell out as quick as you can because that's, that's it for you. You're on the skids and you're on the outskis. She told me that she had fallen in love with somebody at her office and she was demanding a divorce. And she had been seeing this man and she had a lot of very strong feelings for this man and he wasn't in business for himself, which she always abhorred. And he worked for somebody else and he had more money than me and I was on the out. So that was the end of that. But the bottom line is, the bottom line is, is that 
that was taking away what I currently had in the area of sex. Now, what if he would have tried to get, when he was trying to get my wife away from me, he was upsetting my ambitions for the future? No, that would have been taking away what I already had. What if I was married or I was going out with Susie and I want to go out with Mary and I'm trying to get Mary to go out with me? That's my ambitions for the future. But Tom over here, he's making the moves on Mary. And because he's making the moves on Mary, she likes him better than me, which is a pretty logical choice. But the bottom line is, is that the situation as such is he's interrupting my ambitions for the future. And that's where that's going to come in. So we have three basic instincts. They are social, security, and sex. Okay? Now let's go to the bottom of 62. This is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, not in a month, not in a week, not in a day. Next, that means right now. When you go to the delicatessen and they say, now serving 77, and then they go next and they say serving 78, do they mean tomorrow or the next week? No, they mean right now. What do you want? Okay. Next, we decided that in this hereafter, this drama of life, God was going to be our director. Notice these words are in capital letters. He's referring to God. He is the principal and we are his agents. He is the father. We are his children. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we pass to freedom. Now, when we say he is the director, the director of a movie, he says, you sit over there and you're sad and you, you're sad because your dog ran away and you're sad and you cry. And the director says, you, you're happy. You just won the lottery and you go over there and be happy. He tells you what to do and how to do it, right? Well, in, in this world, God is the director. Now, this principle and agency is something a lot of people don't understand. I have a real estate license in the state of Arizona. Part of that real estate license demands that I agree to the state of Arizona to a fiduciary, that's a fun word to say, fiduciary duty to my client. That means that I am going to put the needs of my client above the needs of myself. And in this world, we are going to do that because God is the agent or God is the principal, excuse me, and we are the agents. I'm going to put the needs and wants and desires of God before the needs, wants, and desires of myself. That is what that means, okay? He is the father, we are his children. Now, I hear good. I hear real good sometimes. And I hear what some of you are thinking, but you don't realize my dad was not a nice guy. Maybe he abandoned you. Maybe he molested you. Maybe he beat your mother. Maybe he abandoned your mother. Maybe he was just not an all-around nice guy. This is your heavenly father here. This is your father that's in heaven. This is the perfect father. This is the one that loves you enough to be there for you. This is not your earthly father. Some of you had wonderful fathers. Some of you not so much. So it is the father that is perfect. It is the one upstairs. We are as children. Most good ideas are simple and that concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we pass to freedom. Now here's your third step promises. When we sincerely took such a position 
all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Notice your capital letters here. These capital letters indicate God. Being all-powerful, we provide, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, we enjoyed peace of mind. As we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn very, very important. We were reborn. I am not the little boy that was born on the 24th of May, 1954. I am not that little boy anymore. I will tell the truth. I will not try to manipulate you. I will not try to coerce you. Although on the dinner choice tonight, I might. I don't know. I want Mongolian, so we'll see. But the bottom line is, is that we have a situation where I don't do that anymore. I am not going to sit there and try to manipulate you. I'm not going to try to get you to cash a bad check for me or anything like that. I'm here to serve God. I came here today to serve God. I didn't come here for any other reason. I travel a lot for OA. I travel a lot. I agreed to this um, over a year ago. And they don't subsidize in region conventions like this. So I came at my expense. And I said I would do it. Because the money, I believe, where God guides, God provides. I don't have to wonder, well, what if I spend money and what if I do this? I don't care. Because where God guides, God provides. I get a business sale this year. I get a couple of business sales this year. I'm not going to remember what the heck I spent in the, at this convention. I'm going to be flush. I'm going to be just fine. So the bottom line is where God guides, God provides. And I don't have to worry about it. It's going to, he's going to be there with his end of things. I don't have to worry about it. I'm reborn today. I am here to serve. I am here to do God's bidding. We were now at step three. Again, there's that, there's that thing of we are now at step three. Many of us said to our maker as we understood him. You want to say it with me? Say it with me. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness those I would help of thy power, thy will, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready. We were, could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. We found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person, such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. But it is better to meet God alone than with one who might misunderstand. The wording was, of course, quite optional, so long as we expressed the idea, voicing it without reservation. This was only a beginning. Remember I told you step three is, is a decision and a beginning. Though if honestly and humbly made an effect, sometimes a very great one, was felt at once. Next, now there's a lot of myths in OA today that you do step four, 
you know, after a year, after a month, after a week, there is nothing in the big book that, that bears any of that Narishkite out. It's very clear. Next, it says, next we launched on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning. Why does it say the first step when it's step four? The reason that it says the first step is this is the first of the action steps. Up until now, steps one, two, and three are not action steps. They are steps which are conclusions of the mind. They are conclusions of the mind. But now we're going to go into action steps. Next, that means right now, okay, which many of us have never attempted, top of 64. Though our decision, step three, was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once, there's your instruction, this is your textbook, unless at once followed, by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. That means you get to your step four right now. Right now. As soon as you get those conclusions in mind, right now. Our liquor was but a symptom. We had to get down to causes and conditions. Therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. What does it say then? Whoever it was that asked me about this, it says this was step four. So the instructions are right there. They're telling you, this is this step, this is this step, this is this step. Okay? Therefore, we start, this is step four. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding and fact-facing process. It is an effort to discover the truth about the stock and trade. One object is to disclose damage or unsaleable goods to get rid of them promptly and without regret. If the owner of the business is, a, is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. We did exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup, which had caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways with what has defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. In other words, I don't have to do an inventory on my character assets, as it says to do in other publications. Those are not the things that are causing my failure. The things that are causing my failure are the fear, anger, selfishness, self-seeking, and dishonesty that have ransacked my body my mind and tore me asunder from the time I was a child. But the fact that I'm a pretty good guy, that I have a sense of humor or whatever I have, I have a generous spirit, those are not the things that are causing my failure. So I don't have to sit in inventory those. Those are the things in the store that sell very well. But I have to take an inventory of what doesn't sell so I can get rid of it. Okay? Now let's talk about resentments here for just a second. What is a resentment? A resentment is, it comes from two old, old words. Re, which always means to do again. Repaint, refloor, refuel, rewrite. It always means to do again. Sentment comes from an old word, sentiri which means to feel. So what is a resentment? It means to re-feel old hurts. Now, I am a Chicago Cubs fan. Extraordinaire. 
I'm born and raised on the north side of Chicago. Love the Cubs. They won the World Series last year for the first time in 108 years. And I have a recording on my television, my DVR, of the last game of the World Series between the Cleveland Indians and the Cubs. And in this recording, if there were a test to see who knows the most about this recording, I would get an A. You could not stump me. You couldn't stump me. I know every commercial. I know what the announcer is going to say before they say it. I know by heart every batter, whether they're going to make an out, whether they're going to get a hit. whether they're... I, I would get an A on this test because the recording that I have of that game has some quality that I do not have, and that quality is fidelity. Fidelity means truth and consistency. Truth and consistency. That's what that means. I do not have truth. I do not have consistency. I am a liar by my nature. And I will slant things. And I will obscure things. And I will exaggerate things. And so as I replay what you did to me two years ago, or I replay in my mind what you did to me yesterday, I will change your position just a bit and make it just a little more dastardly. I will change my position and make it a little more angelic. And if you allow me to replay that resentment enough times, I was standing there doing nothing and you came along and you did me dirt. And I will not only believe that, I will throw my life down the toilet pursuing being right. Alcoholics don't get drunk because they lie or because they whatever. They get drunk because they try to force their lies onto other people, including themselves. That's where the danger is. Okay, before we go on to the next paragraph, I need a potty break. We'll be back in five minutes.